This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Greetings, all my fabulous, intelligent, and good-looking listeners, wherever you may be listening today. Laszlo Montgomery here, back in the saddle, finally, after a brutal month of travel. No travel plans on the horizon other than a Vegas run this weekend to see the great one, Sir Paul McCartney, at the... MGM Grand Arena, Toute la Famille Montgomery are all going and I can't wait. I've been a lifelong Anglophile because of that guy and his bandmates. Anyways, I'm hoping for some peace and serenity for the remainder of the summer so that I can keep regularly grinding out an episode a week for y'alls. I know I left you hanging after the Qing Dynasty fell in 1911 and the last emperor abdicated on February 12, 1912. China has suffered through... Endless hardship and chaos since the 1840s. The seven decades between the Opium War until the fall of the Qing was a rough one for the Middle Kingdom. I think we can all agree on that. You know, since we started way back in the beginning, as Shang transitioned to Zhou, and Zhou devolved into spring and autumn and warring states, which led to Qing, which led to Han, and so on and so forth, we always encountered these these rough times in China whenever one tectonic plate of one dynasty grinded against the tectonic plate of one that was waiting in the wings. The seven decades between the Opium War and the abdication of Puyi, the last emperor, as bad as it was, maybe paled in comparison to the traumas that China faced when, throughout history, the central government would fall apart and it was every man for himself for a hundred years or whenever a Liu Bang or a Sima Yan or a Yang Qian came around and sorted everything out. Because this horrific period in China that we're going to look at today is so close to our own, we tend to focus on this one and look at it and think, how did they ever get through this? But they did, and today we're going to look at the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Qing, the Xinhai Revolution, the Xinhai Geming, started off with the Wuchang Uprising on Double Ten Day, 10-10-1911, and concluded on Lincoln's birthday, February 12, 1912, the official day the infant Emperor Puyi abdicated his throne. Today we're going to look at the five years or so that followed the Xinhai Geming. Trust me when I say, with the Qing Dynasty now gone and a new republic established, it was hardly a case of happy days are here again not even by a long shot. The same old group of foreign aggressors who had their steel-tipped boots on China's neck before still kept up the same pressure and were hardly conciliatory and helpful to China's new situation. They had propped up the Qing emperors all these years only for the sake of economic stability and not because they were a bunch of nice guys. Now, with this big shake-up, the foreigners who had So much at stake in China, they all paid close attention and moved to ensure their piece of the China pie was not affected. They didn't want the Chinese and all their unique problems getting in the way of their perfect little world they had carved out there. So foreign support of the new Republican government was fully contingent on the government's support for whatever it was the foreigners demanded. 
And, of course, as long as the new government kept up with interest payments on the loans they took out, what China needed at this critical juncture in their long history was someone extraordinary. Throughout Chinese history, from time to time, great leaders and heroes rose to preeminence at times of great chaos to lift China up to great heights and glory. If there was ever a time when China needed another Li Shimin or uh, Zhu Yuanzhang to save the day, this was the time. China was making a transition to a whole new world that there was no tradition or precedent to draw on. The whole imperial order, going back 21 centuries to Qin Shi Huang, came to an end, and now they had this entirely foreign concept to deal with. They needed someone who had the smarts, the political savvy, the military background, the understanding of foreign ideas, and someone with the charisma needed to deal with the demands of the day, both foreign and domestic. China needed a miracle. Instead, they got Yuan Shikai. Yuan Shikai. We could look back on this time and say, if only, if only, and what if, and wouldn't have been great if. It, it must be frustrating to look back on this time period, especially if you're a China patriot. Why did it have to be Yuan Shikai? Of all people, China, after the Xinhai Revolution, did not bounce back, thanks to a great hero who, through the force of his will, rallied the people and restored China's rightful place in the world. What happened instead was just another period of chaos, upheaval, and general pain and suffering for the masses of people who had suffered on and off going back probably to the beginning of recorded history. Well, no break for the Lao Bai Xing after the Qing are gone. So Yuan Shikai, he takes uh, center stage for this podcast episode today. We spoke about him in the Qing Dynasty Part 7 episode. Yuan Shikai played a major role in the history of the final days and years of the Qing Dynasty. If you recall, in the beginning, you had Zhang Guofan, who we spoke of in the Qing Dynasty Part 5 episode. He created the Xiang Army down in Hunan, which evolved into what became the main Qing army. His protege and successor as the military strongman to control what became known as the Beiyang Army in the north was Li Hongzhang, who we spoke of quite a bit. So along comes Yuan Shikai. We can call him Li Hongzhang's successor to the power base in the north in and around Beijing. Li had thrust Yuan into a high-profile role in Korea to represent Chinese interests and oppose Japanese aggression there. Yuan was a very short, stocky guy who had acquired a can-do reputation. There was hope, at least, well, at the beginning. When the walls came tumbling down on the Qing, he was the strongest military power in China at the time. So, of course, he was sucked into the vortex and played his cards well, such that after the Republic of China commences on January 1st, 1912, Sun Yat-sen, the leader of the Revolutionary Alliance that had morphed into the Kuomintang, or KMT, stepped aside after barely a month serving as the first president of the new republic. And Yuan Shikai, he takes over when Sun hands him the presidency of the Republic of China. And it's all downhill from there. So this is what we're going to look at today. When Yuan Shikai took over on February 13, 1912, the whole matter of dealing with the foreign powers fell to him instead of the Qing imperial court. And these seven predatory powers didn't give President Yuan a break. They all had the same special interests to protect in the Republican era as they did in the Qing era. 
China was heavily in debt to all the powers. After 30 or 40 years of new technologies being introduced to China, a lot of infrastructure had been built that facilitated all kinds of innovations in communication, transportation, and whatnot. So now China was changing and exposed to all kinds of new problems and issues to deal with for which there was absolutely no precedent to help as some sort of guiding light. China was in a major transformational period that was, for all intents and purposes, beyond their control. They always had Confucianism to serve as a handy guide to answer any and all problems that faced the government. There wasn't much sound advice the great sages could offer at this time to China that was caught up in such a whirlwind. In 1912, at the time of the last emperor's abdication, at the genesis of the Republic of China, and now as Yuan Shikai assumed the presidency, China was about as out of control as it had ever been in history. The national finances were in utter and complete disarray. They suffered from the deadly combination of a depleted treasury and no tax revenue. Whatever money raised through customs tariffs went straight to interest payments to the foreign banks. Within the bureaucracy and amongst the scholar elites, everyone was up in arms and voicing all kinds of opposition to the reforms that were washing over China and eradicating established ways of doing things. The Beiyang army in control of the north was not a loyal national army by any means and exhibited loyalty to whoever made sure the soldier's payroll was met. This wasn't a military force that could be counted on for anything. The same old Natural disasters that had plagued China since Yu the Great were still happening, and quiet devastation happened all over China, forcing millions into misery and sustained poverty and created a whole wave of refugees who sought relief in the cities. Except the government was so weak and so broke, there was no famine relief to be found, just more suffering, hunger, and desperation. Now, part of the deal when Yuan was handed the presidency from Sun Yat-sen, was that he had to govern down in Nanjing, the idea being to separate Yuan Shikai from his military power base up near Beijing in the north. Well, in short, Yuan didn't go for this and decided to stay put in Beijing. So this caused a rift with the provisional parliament, and now in this spirit of non-cooperation, both sides had to hammer out a constitution and arrange for parliamentary elections. In January 1913, the Nationalist Party, also known as the Kuomintang, or KMT, they win more than half the parliamentary seats. Forty million men and no women voted in this election. The Nationalists got 269 of the 596 seats of the lower house and 123 of 274 seats in the upper house. The balanced seats were fragmented between three opposing parties. So this establishes the Nationalists as the new potential power center in China. And they're no friends of Yuan Shikai, as we soon find out. The KMT's power base was in the south, and of course, Yuan Shikai's power base was in the north, so, so this was one point of irreconcilable difference. The KMT party leader was a man named Song Jiaoren. Song was one of the original revolutionaries tasked by Sun Yat-sen to organize what became known as the KMT. He's a founder. He brokered the formation of a new party made up of the Revolutionary Alliance with three other smaller parties of similar politics. This new party became the Nationalist Party. 
He was an excellent political organizer and was partly responsible for the success the KMT had in the first elections. So when they swept to power in January 1913, Sung Jiao was credited with facilitating this victory. Sung Jiao-ren had been most outspoken about curbing the executive powers of the president. It was clear from Yuan Shikai's actions that he preferred a strong central authority and was reluctant to share any power. So Song Jiao-ren was a marked man as far as Yuan Shikai and his followers went. And so it was on March 20th, 1913 at the train station in Shanghai. Song Jiao-ren was standing on the platform waiting for his train that would take him to a victory celebration in Beijing when along comes a man named Ying Kui-cheng who pulled out a Browning revolver and popped Song Jiao-ren two times at close range. Song dies two days later from his wounds, and it was a poorly kept secret about who was behind this. Everyone in the know knew that Yuan Shikai had ordered this to silence his vocal opponent and send out a message. So things go from bad to worse, and it's open warfare between the KMT and Yuan from that point on. This doesn't stop the KMT from starting to write a new permanent constitution and moving full speed ahead for a full-scale presidential election. Now, you can imagine how Yuan Shikai is looking at all this. The last thing he wants is an election, especially a fair one. In a political move that would have worked beautifully in today's United States of America, Yuan Shikai, in April of 1913, appealed directly to American Protestants to please pray in their respective churches for China's newly formed Republican government and for its newly convened parliament. It was a big headline grabber in the U.S. papers. Everyone ran with it. I suppose if Hu Jintao did the same thing today in 2011, it would also be quite the big news story. Christian groups from the entire spectrum of Protestant churches were completely moved by this appeal by the president of China and gave their full support, both spiritual and financial. This groundswell of good feeling led to diplomatic recognition between uh, the U.S. and China. Yuan was able to use this prestige to forge further diplomatic bonds with the other foreign powers. The British gave their support to the new government, but at the cost of Yuan offering autonomy in Tibet. Tibet was, at the time, part of China, so with Yuan Shikai so easily relinquishing this prize just to get the Brits to recognize them, didn't go over too well in some circles. And then he did the same thing with Outer Mongolia, giving that vast, barren part of the world full autonomy in return for Russia, formally recognizing the Republic of China. The Japanese, never one to miss out on an opportunity, were able to feast at the table as well and received all kinds of favorable concessions with respect to railroads and transportation. Once Yuan Shikai had all this official foreign recognition, he became much more openly aggressive about purging the parliament of the KMT majority. By the end of the year in 1913, pretty much all of the KMT are either banned or under some form of arrest. In 1913, you had what has become known as the Second Revolution. Yuan dismissed the governors of Jiangxi, Guangdong, and Anhui. All three were KMT strongholds. These three governors resisted and marshaled their forces against Yuan, Seven provinces joined the KMT opposition to the government. But, as it turned out, they were no match for Yuan's army, and the uprising known as the Second Revolution was over even before it got started. 
With this defeat, all the KMT elements were replaced with Yuan's people who were not at all committed to a republic or to any of the concepts such as civilian control of the military and the government. In October, Yuan Shikai had them elect him president for five years. Now, the parliament, devoid of all Nationalist Party members, can't even get a quorum. They end up on indefinite adjournment, and the next year, on January 14, 1914, the parliament is formally dissolved. Yuan Shikai, at this point, makes no effort to hide the fact that uh, he's, you know, more of a monarch kind of a guy than an elected type. But his free giveaways to the foreigners, especially with regard to Tibet and Mongolia in exchange for support, had cost him a lot of political capital. He was also bitterly resented for the way in which he was so eager to take out these loans with foreign banks rather than try to resolve China's fiscal crisis through taxes and other non-borrowing solutions. Nonetheless, on May 1st, 1914, a new government is established with Yuan in charge with for all intents and purposes, dictatorial powers. The KMT were out, and Sun Yat-sen was driven into exile. Sun made his way to Japan, and as he boarded that boat, he must have been thinking, what a mistake it was to have trusted this Yuan Shikai. All of Sun Yat-sen's dreams of a republic were all going right down the drain. At the founding of the republic, Sun knew he needed military support. Without an army or any kind of muscle... Sun Yat-sen knew the new Republican government was toothless. So for the sake of what he thought was a move to shore up the prestige and political authority of the new Republic of China, Sun Yat-sen stepped aside and invited Yuan Shikai to be the man. Well, wrong move as it turned out. You know, if you look back in history, going back thousands of years, how many times has it been whenever any military man gets a hold of political power and becomes the central authority, they always abuse it. I mean, we keep bringing up Cincinnati and George Washington as these two needles in a haystack who had this ultimate power and then handed it back to the government when it was mission accomplished and then went home to go tend their fields and farms. You know, where are the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth examples? I know there's more than Cincinnati and Washington, but not that many. Yuan Shikai joined the long list of military men who, once they got a taste of being the chief executive of the country, they started getting delusions of grandeur. So, poor Sun Yat-sen, the Guofu, the father of the country, he knows as his boat makes its way to Japan that his personal legacy is going to be tarnished by Yuan Shikai. As Sun departs, though, good old Kang Youwei, remember him of the Hundred Days Reform? He was the Guangxu Emperor's advisor until Aunt Cixi put an end to that. Kang Youwei and Liang Qichao, they escaped from China and went to Japan. Well, now, Kang was back, and we'll look at him later when we discuss General Zhang Xun. Now, amidst all this political upheaval, the foreign powers were taking every measure to make sure all their investments were protected. They stayed out of the fray, for the most part, and preferred a good old behind-the-scenes role, manipulating what they could to make sure profits kept flowing and assets were safe. The banks were more than happy to keep lending to the Yuan Shikai government. Everyone knew the China treasury was empty and the sheer chaos in the countryside meant no tax revenue was coming in. For the banks, the Yuan Shikai government was a fount of the finest and subprime loans. They kept lending and lending and Yuan kept taking in order to fund this new infant republic. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, a lot is said about how despite all this destructive behavior, Yuan was still a vigorous reformer and that he had this large coterie of highly overpaid foreign experts who supposedly advised him on all kinds of matters that no doubt Yuan Shikai hardly understood or was qualified to act upon. But then, out of nowhere, came news on January 28, 1914, far, far away in the city of Sarajevo. Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir presumptive to the Austro-Hungarian throne, along with his wife Sophie, are gunned down, and this lights the fuse to a chain reaction of explosions that ignites World War I. This had a huge impact on China, because now Britain, Russia, France, the U.S., and of course Germany were all sooner or later, embroiled in this epic conflict. So with the principal foreign powers all distracted, it was a moment where China could catch a breather and operate without the proverbial boot on their neck. With so many Americans and Europeans called home to fight the war effort, the void created in the economy was filled with local Chinese and Chinese entrepreneurs the China currency doubled against the U.S. dollar and the pound. China exports of natural resources and manufacturers had a big spike in demand. Amidst this world upheaval, China's economy grew at 13.8%. And of course, the Japanese again, yet again, add to the already substantial accumulated enmity between themselves and China and declare an alliance with Great Britain. And with that... The German concessions in Shandong province are considered fair game, and they go in and attack them and sort of fill the void left by the Germans. But that wasn't enough. You know, I'm fascinated to some extent with current Chinese views of Japan. Even amongst the Chinese younger than me, there's a lot of animosity about how Japan has treated China in recent history, meaning since about the 1800s. On January 18th, 1915, the Japanese ambassador presents a document directly to President Yuan Shikai. The document basically said in so many words, if you want a good relationship with us and you want us to recognize any future monarchs who have designs on making themselves emperor, you have to agree to these 21 conditions. Now, first of all, following correct diplomatic protocol, this letter should have been handed to the foreign ministry and not directly to the chief executive. Plus, the outrageousness of the demands just couldn't have been more insulting and disrespectful of China's sovereignty as a nation. And all these militaristic watermarks, clearly visible on the paper, also wasn't lost on the Chinese side. Essentially, the 21 demands, as they became known, sort of called for China to hand over control of their economy, government, and civil services, namely the police, to the Empire of Japan. Now, the Japanese ambassador, perhaps knowing the audacity of this document, requested that it remain confidential. But of course, it was leaked and the outrage was predictable. At first, the Japanese denied it, but on February 14th, Valentine's Day, Japan comes clean with an edited version. 
The 21 demands were broken down into five groups. The five groups were Shandong Province, Southern Manchuria and Eastern Mongolia, the Hanyeping Company, which was a huge coal mining operation. The fourth group involved coastal territory, and the fifth was called Miscellaneous, which was an understated group name. So to summarize, the first four demands basically gave Shandong Province lock, stock, and two smoking barrels to Japan. They just walked right into Germany's shoes there. Demands number five through 11 turned most of Manchuria into a Japanese colony, although not in name. They took it over, settled it, and enjoyed full mineral rights and the control of all transportation, including railroads. Demands 12 and 13 gave Japan control of the Hanyeping coal mining and steel production operations, the largest in China. The Group 4 demand, number 14, basically stipulated that China could not cede or lease to a third party any harbor, bay, or island on the Chinese coast. Then came the Group 5 demands, the so-called Group of Miscellaneous Demands. I'll just read them off, and you can judge for yourself whether or not total public outrage was warranted or not, because believe me, this really did a lot to rally the people and ignite a sense of nationalism that even the Japanese, I'm sure, got a little concerned about. Demand number 15 basically said the China central government had to hire Japanese advisors to advise them on political, financial, and military matters. Number 16 said Japanese hospitals, temples, schools, and monasteries could own land in China's interior. Number 17, police forces in key areas were to be jointly run by Chinese and Japanese, or at least employ large numbers of Japanese. Number 18 demanded that China purchase a minimum 50% of their munitions requirements from Japanese arms companies and cooperate with Japan on this point. Demand number 19, Japan was allowed to construct railroads between key cities. 20 said that if any foreign labor was required in Fujian province for the sinking of mines or building harbors or building railways, Japan had to be consulted first. And last but not least, the 21st demand said Japan could propagate the teachings of Japanese Buddhism in China. Yuan Shikai accepted the demands on May 9, 1915. Well, not all of them. He said, forget about it as far as the Group 5 demands went. These were thrown out and Japan didn't press. But other than that, Yuan Shikai signed it and it said this was the price he paid to get secret Japanese support for his future bid to become the new emperor of China. The public outrage was enormous from the get-go. The national and patriotic outrage was so great that the whole matter of this sellout to the Japanese climaxed on May 4, 1919, a date which forever lives in infamy as a day of national outrage and reawakening as a nation and a people. And the May 4th movement, the Wu Si Yuntong, we will focus on as a future podcast episode. Yuan Shikai was essentially already acting like he was the emperor and had a none-too-subtle campaign going on to sort of test the waters. He called for the worship of Confucius and made the traditional greetings that an emperor would at the Temple of Heaven and participated in all those rituals. Plenty of those in government who had surrounded Yuan were rolling their eyes. This whole idea had no 
major popular support. Yuen was advised by his American advisor on all things constitutional, Dr. Frank Goodnow, later of uh, Johns Hopkins University. Goodnow famously, supposedly provided Yuen with all the right reasons and justification why monarchy was the correct system of government for a nation such as China. Yuan Shikai took this advice and ran with it, and by mid-September 1915, he was already openly making preparations for the big day, which had not been announced yet. He wasn't too subtle. He paid the Jingde Zhen porcelain factories 1.4 million yuan to get cracking on a 40,000-piece porcelain set for the palace of the new emperor. It was from these kilns, from this city in Jiangxi province, where the Chinaware came from that graced the palaces of the emperors going all the way back to the Tang Dynasty. But in the end, it wasn't meant to be. On May 21st, 1916, Yuan decided, after so much opposition from every segment of the government and from the people, that he had neither popular nor political support. So he backed out of the whole idea as soon as the province of Guangxi broke away from the republic and many provinces were daring to follow. To avert a civil war, he abdicated after only a few months of ruling as emperor. This whole misadventure in monarchy had destroyed Yuan's credibility, as if accepting the 21 demands wasn't enough. So two and a half weeks later, he dies from kidney failure, 95 years to the date that I am uploading this podcast on June 6th, 1916. That's the end of Yuan Shikai. Wrong man at the wrong time. So now what do they do? Well, the vice president, Li Yuanhong, takes over as the third president of the republic. Li was the famous Qing army commander who reluctantly took command at the Wuchang Uprising on Double Ten Day in 1911. He ended up serving as Yuan Shikai's VP, and now fate has led him to the presidency of China. I forgot to mention, during this period we're discussing... Um, Sun Yat-sen got married. This was after he had escaped to Japan in 1914 when Yuan Shikai turned on the KMT and did his utmost to stamp them out. And not long after Sun Yat-sen arrives in Japan, he married a great and remarkable woman who is known in history, among other names, as a patron saint of the left. She was the middle daughter of Charlie Sung, who you may recall, was Sun Yat-sen's financial backer in the formative years of the Revolutionary Alliance. Charlie Sung had three daughters and a son who all played major roles in China in the decades that would follow. But on October of 1915, Sung Ching-ling eloped against her father's will and sailed to Japan to join Dr. Sun there and to become his wife, his second wife. He was 50, she was 23. We'll dedicate a whole podcast to Song Qingling later. She was also known in the history books as Madame Sun Yat-sen. She died in 1981 and lived to the ripe old age of 88. So now Yuan Shikai is gone and we have Li Yuanhong now as president. The whole office of the presidency is tarnished badly and doesn't have much to show for itself. This new president had no real power base to speak of. The treasury was as empty in 1916 as it ever was. Nonetheless, Lee puts on a brave face and makes an attempt to mop up and get the house in order. The foreign powers are still neck deep in World War I at this time, and Japan is still gnawing away at China, doing their thing. 
About a year after Lee assumes the presidency, there's a coup. Along comes General Zhang Xun. The year is 1917. General Zhang is a very colorful and storied character. He was a hardcore Qing Dynasty supporter. It was Zhang Xun who was handpicked by the Empress Dowager Cixi herself to lead them away from the palace uh, to safety during the final days of the Boxer Uprising when the foreign allied army was closing in on the palace. He was a well-known Qing general who fought to the bitter end and was admired by Yuan Shikai for his bravery and charisma. In 1913, when Yuan moved against the KMT, again it was Zhang Xun's army who turned on them in Nanjing and looted and ransacked the city for three days to show his wrath against the Republican-leaning Kuomintang. By now, Sun Yat-sen had already returned from Japan in the summer of 1916 and was organizing a new alliance. The KMT was reconstituted as the Revolutionary Party. He was the main voice against all this militarism invading the government. He fought the good fight, but republicanism was going to have to wait for a while. Things were starting to disintegrate real fast, and it was like the Eastern Zhou, the Eastern Han, Eastern Qin, and the Three Kingdoms all over again. Armies were slowly starting to coalesce around various generals who we have come to know as the warlords. In June 1917, when Zhang Xun marches into Beijing, he's joined on the 27th by none other than Kang Youwei, and at General Zhang's behest, Kang is back in business as the deputy director and the emperor's advisory council. Just like the good old days when he was Guangxu's main man for all things Western. Zhang Xun was such a reactionary, he never cut his cue and refused his soldiers to cut theirs as well. This is how dedicated he still openly was to the Qing and the, the old days. On July 1st, Zhang Xun takes the 11-year-old last emperor, Pu Yi, who all this time was living in the Forbidden City as a guest of the government, and puts him on the throne and declares him emperor. Kang Youwei can hardly contain his excitement that finally they can 86 this whole Republic of China thing and have a proper emperor once again to really take China places. Kang was working overtime, issuing all kinds of reforms and papers on how to set up and run this constitutional monarchy. The historical precedent of Charles II in England, who took over after Cromwell, was used to show that, well, the constitutional monarchy could follow uh, a Republican period. Kang had visions of constitutional monarchy, but his boss, Zhang Xun, and his military advisors were thinking nothing of the sort. They had no loyalty to any Republican ideals and were fully intent on restoring a full-blown imperial government. Kang realized too late that this was not meant to be, and once again he was on the losing team. A lot of the military men and warlords who had committed themselves to Zhang Xun started to pull their support. By the middle of July, rival generals stormed the palace and defeated Zhang Xun. Zhang escaped to the Dutch legation where he was given asylum and never heard from again. The last emperor, Pu Yi, gets a quick flourish of glory, but before he knows it, he's back to where he was before Zhang Xun put him on the throne and turned his life upside down. Pu Yi will stay in the Forbidden City until 1924 when he gets thrown out, but that's for another podcast. 
And so it's right here after the fall of Jiangxun that the age of warlordism in China begins in earnest. From this point on, the central government becomes a puppet of whichever warlord is powerful enough to pull the strings. We're going to stop right here, and on another day we'll look at the decade of the warlord period in China from 1917 to 1927. For now, I just wanted to look at the immediate aftermath of the Xinhai Revolution from 1912 to 1917. We have a lot of fireworks to follow, including the whole May 4th movement, the founding of the Communist Party, and all the savagery out in the countryside with bandits roaming and causing endless misery and destruction and battling warlords, adding to the already miserable lives of the peasantry. So China isn't out of the tunnel by a long shot. Once again, there emerges another classic Chinese period of disunity. China will get the shaft at the Paris Peace Conference, and when the Treaty of Versailles is announced, China is betrayed despite their contribution to the war effort and the thousands and thousands of Chinese lives that were lost, all for another day. For now, this is your humble host and narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from the lovely town of Claremont, home of the Cheese Cave, Eureka Burger, and the Lemley Theatres at First and Indian Hill Boulevard. That's all we got for you this time. Join us next week, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.